You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Hi, gang. Welcome back to the podcast. How many threads connect us to what is below the surface, out of the darkness into the light? I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, a conversation with Peter Spiegelman, author of A Secret About a Secret. Later on in segment two, T.J. English, author of Dangerous Rhythms, joins the conversation. So, Peter, I got to tell you something, if you don't mind. I've known about you for a very, very long time. So this is my apology. It took quite a while to get to you. But thank you for joining us on the podcast to talk about your new book, A Secret about a secret. You've also written Black Maps, that's Little Helper, Red Cat, Dr. Knox, and you've been a contributor to the Wall Street Journal Noir, which is a great series, by the way. The whole Noir series is great. It's really very well done. So I want to thank you once again for putting up with us, and it's a pleasure to meet <laughs> you for the first time. Well, Larry, uh, the pleasure is mine, and I thank you very much. Uh, for having me on, really. It's um, it's great to be here and to talk to you. So what I like to do is, I believe there are two stories when I sit down and have a conversation with a very talented writer. There's a story between the covers of the book and there's a story outside the covers of the book. So if you don't mind, take us back to where you grew up and along the way brought you to sitting here today talking about your latest book, which I think was exceedingly well done. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, well, um, what brought me uh, to where I am now? Um, uh, you know, start at the beginning. I was I was born in New York City. Um, grew up there uh, for um, the first. Let me think. Must have been eight years of my life. Um, I was born into a, a family of doctors. Both my both my parents are doctors. And they were of that kind of um, old school version of, of physicians for whom medicine was a merely a religious calling. Right, right. Like that was that was their lives, and like they they loved us. I, you know, my 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 sister and brother they loved us to death. Um, but we were definitely job two. Like number one was their work, right? So. Uh, they were great doctors. Like you know, um, their their patients wept when they retired, which you know they did not that long ago. Um, but we were definitely job two, and so there was a certain amount of chaos in in our childhoods. Um, and uh, one sort of signal of that was we we had a couple of kind of coast to coast moves as kids, that, like without any warning. So uh, you know when when uh, I guess it was, yeah, third grade was over with, um, like, like a week afterwards with no warning, we up and moved to, uh, to California, to, um, to LA, to the kind of the slums of Beverly Hills. Are there slums um, in Beverly Hills? I guess there are. Uh, they, yeah, kind of. <laughs> um, and, uh, we, we were out there for a while. Um, my, I think my dad really liked it. He liked the you know, the lifestyle. My mom just hated it. She did not practice medicine out there. She barely went outside. 
She just could not stand it. And uh, the only time she kind of perked up is when we made trips back to New York. So um, when sixth grade was done, I uh, we, we had one uh, another of these kind of, you know, very short notice moves. Like, again, about a week after school was done, um, we headed back to New York. And my parents, uh, they had no jobs. They had no idea where they were going to live. We lived in a hotel uh, on Central Park South for a while. Uh, they had just no clue as to what was going on. Um, but they figured, okay, somehow things will work themselves out. And magically they did. Um, they ended up uh, practicing at a small, small hospital in Putnam County up, um, in a little town called Cold Spring, New York, which is sort of right across the Hudson from West Point. And, um, I ended up uh, going to military school <laughs> because it was so late in the year and I was such a disruptive kid back in California um, that no private schools like wanted to touch me and the local public schools were really pretty bad. Um, so I ended up in military school, uh, which was not good. <laughs> it, was, it was decidedly not good. Um, it was a kind of Lord of the Flies type experience, and it absolutely informed some of my descriptions in my latest book about um, my protagonist Miles uh, about his his upbringing. So, can uh, I can I ask you about the book? Please, please. It, first of all, the title is exceptional. It's very simplistic, but you draw us in with the title because there are secrets, and there are secrets, and there are secrets. So in a sense, is the book, in the big picture, a cautionary tale about corporate, espionage, drug trials, and a whole bunch of other things you throw into the narrative? Um, is it a cautionary tale about that? I, I suppose it can function as that, certainly. Um, I, think it, I think it does function on that level. And um, there are, you know, we've, we've seen... Uh, kind of lots of examples of that in the real world. We've seen what happens when that sort of Silicon Valley, you know, move fast and break things. Right. ethos finds its way into healthcare. Um, we saw that, you know, with Theranos <laughs> um, and, and, you know, that whole situation. Um, and so I, I, I suppose it can function, you know, at, at that level. Um, I hope that it also functions weirdly uh, you know, I, I don't. I did not set out to write, and I've never set out to write. Like I'm, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a, you know, a techno thriller, or I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write, you know, a hard boiled PI novel, or you know, I, I do not have genre in mind right. when I sit down to tell a story. I'm just trying to tell the best story that I can, and I'm trying to do it, um, you know, in a way that, you know, uh, that gives my characters, my setting the plot, full room to breathe, you know, and, and, and exercise themselves. Um, that said, you know, I absolutely have written hard-boiled, you know, PI novels, and my first three novels were that. Um, and I've, I've written a, a heist story, Thick as Thieves was that. Um, if I had to sort of put a genre, you know, a subgenre tag on this, right. um, I suppose I would say country house mystery, really. Man. I mean, that, that's kind of what I had in mind. If I had if I had any particular form in mind, it was that. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you put it that way because I have odd 
references when I sit down to read a book and then make my notes. And unfortunately, my references come, my touchstones come from television and the movies. Now, when your character, Agent Miles, is driving up to this edifice, you know what popped into my mind? What? Because of the way you set the mood and the setting? Dark shadows. Oh, okay. That, that's awesome. I'll, you know, I'll totally take that because I, <clears throat> I was completely trying for, um, you know, to establish and maintain a kind of gothic, a gothic vibe, um, you know, throughout. Um, I would say the other things that I had in mind, which maybe you'll relate to, do you remember the old um, Avengers television series? Oh, Emma, Mrs. Peel. Yes. Come on, those, one of the best. And those, and those episodes where they find themselves in weird little English right. towns, right? right? Where, where the townspeople are maybe a little bit sinister or crazy or something. Um, or... Um, the prisoner, you know, uh, I, you know that these absolutely were. They were definitely on my mind. They were definitely on my mind. So I want to tell the audience. My guest is Peter Spiegelman. The book is called A Secret About a Secret. Right, here's my second reference. It comes from a book and also a great television program I just binged, The Man in the High Castle. And I'm going to tell you why. Because in The Man in the High Castle, it's an alternative view. The Nazis have won the war, and the Japanese have won the war and split up the country. And the Nazi headquarters are in New York City. And early on, you hear the sound of the boots coming down the hallway. It is loud. It is dramatic. When Agent Miles comes into the edifice there, he, he meets a woman. It is that same sound as boots or shoes are coming down the hall. And the way that you depict it will be right into the story. Something's about to, ha to happen from the get-go and I don't know if I'm off base with that, but you are, and this is a very positive comment, you are a very dense, descriptive writer about setting and mood. And that's why I think this book is kind of unique in terms of whatever genre you want to call it. Well, I, I really appreciate um, those, those comments, Larry. Um, I really, uh, to me, setting and character are inextricably intertwined. I think right. setting is the soil in which uh, the characters grow and, and you know, from which they enact the plot, you know, of, of whatever story it is you're telling. So I'm, I'm very, always very concerned with setting and, um, you know, just as a reader, uh, you know, I, I respond to that stuff um, immensely. Um, so I, I, I really appreciate that. Like I, I I read Philip K. Dick's book, but I actually haven't seen the, the series, which I hear great things about. It, it's it, really it, good. it is terrific. I mean, I'm sure it deviates from the book somewhat, but um, it addresses a lot of interesting things about the great what ifs and yes. hu and, and humankind well, I, and everything I, else. I like that you you uh, that that was brought to mind for you because the you know the the other way that I describe this book is you know I describe it as sort of a country house mystery, but that in a in a world that's like fifteen degrees off our own, it's, it's not quite our world, you know. It's it, and and the places, the, the locales, while they may seem very familiar, they resist, you know, specific identification. Um, because I, I really did want to create that sort of alternate world, not not radically alternate. The you know, it's not science fiction. The the laws of physics still apply. Right. And, 
you know, and that sort of thing. As a writer, are you taking a gamble by trust, trusting us as the reader to be drawn into the narrative and the plot? Because as you said, you're taking us into alternative universe. We kind of have to think, where is it? Is it someplace in the United States, in New England? Is it in a foreign country? Who are these people? And, and I'm very interested in what I call, if you don't mind me diverging a little bit, backstories. Because I want to know the backstories. And the backstories of the young lady who was murdered is interesting. And also, not until very late in the book do we get the backstory of Miles. And I think as the art and craft of storytelling, that is really important for me to get drawn into it. Who are these people? Where do they come from? For sure. Uh, um, you know, as a reader, I'm, I'm the same way. And I'm certainly looking to do that in, in this book. Um, the, you know, this was my first experience with writing, having a story set in something other than the real world. All of my other books, you know, the settings of all my other books and stories are places that I know well, that, right. I, that right. I've lived in, worked in, you know, traveled a lot to, whatever. Like, I, I know these places. So in in using them for the settings of the story, it was really a kind of, you know, sculpting process. I'm chiseling away all of the, you know, uh, all of the, the, the elements of, those real world settings to focus on elements of, of setting that best support my story, that whatever story I'm trying to tell. So it's not, you know, I'm not trying to write a, you know, a travel guide to LA or to New York city or whatever. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to sculpt those settings and focus them in the, you know, by way of supporting the story and the, and the character that I, you know, characters that I'm dealing with. This was a different issue altogether because I was not starting. I, mean, I was distinctly not starting with something real. And instead of sculpting, this was more like layering paint on, like layer after layer of paint to create a setting. So instead of taking stuff away, it was just by accretion, you know, adding details, again, to, you know, to create the setting that best served my story. That is so interesting, the way that you verbalize the way you think about what you do. And I'm going to take slight issue based on my understanding of the book. You're saying you're putting layers upon layers, and that is very accurate. But also in terms of the investigation, the investigator and the investigators that work with him are chipping away and chipping away oh, and yes. chipping away to get what I call essential truths. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, I think of that, um, you know, in terms of, of – you know, revealing character and the and the central truths that they're after have very much to do with the victim. Like who you know, who was she? Who you know, this is a complicated person. Many aspects to her life, and her life was complicated. Um, and I think of it as like you know, it's the peeling of the onion. Right. You know, we, we peel away layer after layer until we get down, you know, to as close as we can. Because I don't know that you can ever really get there, but as close as we can to you know the, the core elements. So tell us what's going on in, quote unquote, this research facility that you conjured up in your own mind, because that's really important for us as the reader to understand what's going inside the walls and actually what's going on, as importantly, outside the walls, on the grounds, facing the ocean. And also you talk about a cave. Now, when you go back to the history of mankind, the cave was a place for comfort, getting out of the darkness if you know anything about the history of wolves, 
they're a pack animals. They like to be together for comfort and support. And, the, and in terms of the history of mankind, cave and caves play an important role. And in your story, this particular cave is also essential. Yes, well, you know, I was I was definitely trying for, um, as I said, that sort of gothic vibe and a, you know, a, and a very uh, sort of um, forbidding kind of setting, and you know, uh, uh, a rough seacoast, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, what used to be an old boarding school, right? The, the the big, you know, old manor house that was at one time a boarding school and is now home to Onstrand Biologic, a kind of secretive um, high-tech, you know, biotech research firm. Uh, and it's set over, you know, this, this cove overlooking the sea, and there's a narrow beach, um, you know, down at the bottom of these cliffs. And uh, there are also uh, some caves that have been, you know, uh, carved out by over, you know, eons, you know, uh, by the action of the tide. Um, and yes, it's, you know, the cave is, uh, amongst other things, you know, it's, it's a place where some of the local trespassing teenagers gather to, um, you know, smoke weed and drink beer and have sex. And, um, it's also a, just more broadly a kind of trysting place. Um, and it does absolutely figure into the story. I don't want to give away you know, any spoilers. <laughs> um, and in terms of, you know, the, 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 um, this sort of, you know, this country house and this, and this biotech firm that, that uses it as a headquarters, um, you know, that, that is very much a closed environment. You know, this is a firm that is at the cutting edge of, uh, you know, of, of biotech research and genetic, uh, you know, genetic editing, genetic engineering, um, and uh, they have created this sort of very hermetic campus environment right. um, that is dominated by the, you know, the, the founder of this company, um, who is, you know, a, a big, big personality. <laughs> so let's reset for a moment. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. And we, kind of, we had a conversation before he came on air about a, good, a terrific crime fiction writer named S.J. Roseanne. And this is what S.J. said about Peter Spiegelman. A secret about a secret, S.J. said, from whole cloth, I sense, he has the ability to conjure vivid characters and places with a few perfectly chosen words. Now, in terms of words that you chose, I think of the great story Rochamon, where everybody has a different story about the same event. In your book... Every character talking about the late lamented, no pun intended, Dr. Allegra stands, everybody essentially says the same things. The same picture is portrayed. And I find that interesting. Everybody says the same thing about it. But we get back to once again, who was this woman and what happened to her? Yes. Well, they all, I suppose, broadly agree on the facts of her life, and they agree that she was brilliant, and they agree that she was ambitious, and they agree that she was charismatic. Um, and I, I think there was sort of a broad, you know, kind of agreement about that amongst the people who, who knew her and who Miles talks to. But their own experience of that is somewhat different, right? right. So they agree that she's brilliant, but... Um, where some people see, you know, brilliance and ambition, other people see, you know, self-serving and, you know, um, kind of, you know, arrogance, you know, um, where some people see, uh, 
you know, a charming charisma. Others see, you know, a kind of, of cruelty um, and a manipulativeness. So, so it's, you know, it, it, I think we do get, you know, she, she uh, as Miles Lenz, you know, she struck people, you know, different people in different ways. Um, and not, not surprising that is, you know, kind of human, human interaction is that way. Um, but of course, you know, as Miles is trying to pick apart the various possible motives for her murder, um, you know, these are all strands that he has to untangle. Now, in terms of human interactions, as a person who's been involved in the running scene for a long time, much slower now than ever was when I was relatively decent, she's uh, ex an exceptional runner and competitor, but also drawn into this cast of characters are a lot of the members of the running club. That, to me, also says that you came up with a unique idea to pull these people together through the world of running, which is very commonplace, but you set it up a lot differently. Yes. Well, and that is absolutely part of my own experience. I, I um, you know, in the, I guess the first 20 years or so of my, my working life, that, you know, after I got out of school, um, I worked in uh, software design and uh, also in banking. I, right. you know, I worked in a field that we didn't call it this at the time, but now it's come to be called FinTech, financial technology. Um, so, I, you know, I did that for a while. And um, I had, uh, along with some partners of mine, um, a software company that, uh, you know, and our, our customers were, were some of the biggest banks and central banks really all around the world. Um, and we had a core group of us, like one of my partners and myself, we were avid, avid runners. And so we, we had like a little informal, like, you know, group of runners that we would go out, you know, every lunchtime um, and, uh, you know, do three miles, five miles, you know, six miles, uh, depending upon what the afternoon schedule was, was looking like. Um, and, and it was a, you know, it was a, a great sort of interaction, great, and, and we would, you know, run in races together and stuff like that. And it was lots of fun. It was lots of fun. And I absolutely drew on, you know, on that experience and the sort of camaraderie of that. We were not nearly as, you know, sort of competitive and, and structured as, uh, you know, as Allegra's running club was, but we, we certainly had a good time. Now, for the writers out there, I want to ask you your opinion about this. I learned this from Joseph Cannon, who's a terrific writer about espionage, a fellow New York City writer, by the way. You may have touched base across paths with him. And, of course, one of his books, The Good German, became a pretty good movie. wasn't reviewed great, but I really liked it because I know Joseph and I know the book. And the one thing I learned from him is something called compression of time. In other words, if it's a movie and you're getting into a car to go someplace, you don't, you don't see that whole scene in the movie. You see where they're going to. So it's, that's compression of time. As a writer, do you have the luxury of compression in time or you don't care? You can spread things out because Agent Miles gets access to a car and he's traveling all over the place, which I love. It's almost a travelogue, these little cities in the in the area that you made up, but it, it's very descriptive. I almost want to go there in terms of what you do. But is compression of time something you have to wrestle with when you sit down to work on your oh, book? Always, always, because I think it's a key element in maintaining, you know, a, a sort of propulsion through the story, right? It, it, that, that, that sort of, you know, forward movement you know, page, you know, page to page. Um, a, a big part of that is is absolutely compression of time. Um, so I, I do think about it. It's, you know, um, part of what I wrestle with. I think a lot of writers wrestle with in transition scenes when we're writing transitions to, you know, we've 
we finished one thing and now we're going to the next. And, you know, of course, we don't have to and we don't want to uh, follow our protagonist through all the mundane elements of, you know, of, of his or her day of like, okay, now I'm going to brush my teeth. Now it is time to floss. You know, like no one wants to see that, right? There's always that decision of where, where do we go next? Where do we pick up from? What kind of assumptions can, um, can we count on the reader to make with us that, that sort of bridge, you know, those two points along the, along the curve? So all of those things are, are super important. Um, and, and of course, you know, time compression is another tool that you use to really focus the reader's attention on the things that you want them to be focused on. So in terms um, of that, let, let's follow up, go someplace else, going back to the car. As a rider, mm-hmm. when do you step on the gas and when do you pull back, get on the brakes? And I'll tell you why. I think you tend to step on the gas toward the back end of the book. And that's when we really start to get in. I know you don't want any spoiler alerts, but when we think it's over, it's not over. And there's a scene in there where Adrian Miles is in a very precarious position. I almost call it suspension of disbelief, and that's another part of the art and craft of storytelling. So I'm not going to go any further, but towards the latter stages of the book, in my interpretation, you are really stepping on the gas. I think that's true. I would, I would agree with you. I would agree with you. Um, you know, I, I think that my pacing um, towards the start of the book is uh, more measured. I think that what I'm relying on there for that propulsion is the reader's curiosity in terms of who are these people? Who is Miles? Who the hell does he work for? And what is this world? Like this world that like these places that I think I know, but I don't know. (laughs) You know, I think all of that creates, I hope, um, a focus and curiosity um, that, that provides a a sort of propulsive force in the earlier parts of the book. And then um, having, you know, brought the reader through that, um, you know, then it's, really the the resolution of of the plot and the mystery you know sort of the aspects um that help propel things along with as you say you know throughout this we we are learning things right we are learning what this is we are learning who miles works for and we are learning about miles and his you know um just the, the burdens that he carries from his own from his own childhood so um you know we learn about all of those things and and hopefully you know, the, the desire to learn more about those things are also, you know, continue to propel. I have two more questions for you before we let you go. Yes. Thank you very much for your time. My first question is, and I asked this of another writer who I'm not going to name. And I said, are you more comfortable being interviewed with fellow writers or even more comfortable doing something with me? And I didn't follow up based on my experience of many decades of doing that because I didn't think it was appropriate at that time. But you're in a world of, a very le- a lot of talented crime fiction writers and beyond that. So are you more comfortable being with them and they were going to do an interview with you and you and you were promoting this book and I'm sure I'm not the only person you're talking to. Are you more comfortable doing something like this outside of your own world and expertise with fellow writers? Oh gosh, that's a tough question. Um, I, you know, Writer, uh, a lot of the writers who are my friends, I, I would say all of them who are my friends, 
one thing we have in common is we love talking about the craft. We love talking about building story. We love talking about books that we love or stories that we love, whether they're in film or television and how those stories are put together. And, you know, we can like battle on about that shit endlessly. <laughs> and I love it. I love doing it. And in fact, um, not, not long after this book came out, uh, I did an Instagram live, uh, uh, thing, um, with SJ and, and, and you know, SJ and I had a, a conversation and that she's a fantastic interviewer. I will tell you. We love and, SJ. Uh, I go way back with her and she is one of the best and she's very thoughtful, kind and giving in terms of what she knows. She sure is. And if Terry Gross ever decides to like hang it up on fresh air, SJ, I think she you know, can make a, a an yeah. awfully good pitch for that job because she's really good at it. We had a great conversation. On the other hand, Larry, I, I, you know, this is great. I, totally comfortable talking to you. I think part of that is because you're obviously a person who deeply loves story and is deeply interested not only in particular stories of whatever books or films that you're, you know, looking at, but also how stories are put together and, and the kind of mechanics of, about, you know, of that. So I'm super comfortable talking about, you know, uh, talking about that really with anybody who's, you know, who's interested. Um, writers tend to be you know, interested in that stuff, but clearly they don't have a monopoly. All right. So we end every segment, what I call, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? So what did I miss? What did I get wrong? You can run with that, my friend. No pun intended since you're a runner too. <laughs> um, well, I, I don't know that you got anything wrong. Um, in terms of, you know, anything you missed, I, I don't know that you missed a whole lot. I, you know, I would say that, um, one of the things that, well, I think, you know, there are, there are several things that kind of uh, makes my, my book not the typical country house mystery. One of them is, is this, you know, the setting and the headquarters of this kind of secretive biotech company. Um, but the other one is the fact that Miles himself is not, you know, he's not a policeman. He's not a detective. He is, you know, in, in, this, in this world that is not quite our own, the security state rooms very large and right. miles is an agent of the most feared element of the security state uh you know that has the anodyne name of standard division and uh, standard division you know, the, the, their agents are called warrior monks of the security state and they operate you know without concern for niceties like due process or you know uh, uh you know, uh, any, any, you know, protections of, of law. Um, but Miles is definitely a, he's a conflicted warrior monk. You know, he's, um, he's reflexively skeptical. He's resistant to authority. Uh, he tries to be a good soldier, but, you know, he's got burdens of his own past that he deals with. So he's not entirely, you know, he's not entirely a, a, a good soldier. Um, and I think that's, you know, sort of another another aspect of this that's kind of kind of was interesting to me. So on a personal note, you can tell your agent she has a terrific or he has a terrific client. So uh, they're doing, <laughs> you're doing a great job for them. My guest has been Peter Spiegelman. The book is called A Secret About a Secret. I'm Larry Davidson. After the break, TJ English joins the conversation. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. 
Hi, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. I want to deviate from my normal introduction. When I prepare to do an interview, if the book stays with me long after I finish the book or it's 3.30 in the morning, in my mind, that is a 10. My guest, TJ English, is the author of Dangerous Rhythms, Jazz on the Underworld. This book is a 10 plus. Somebody once said, Douglas Brinkley, I think, said this and wrote it in a blurb. DJ has mastered the hybrid narrative art form of social history and underworld thriller in his book, Dangerous Rhythms. So it's great to see you, TJ. We talked a few years ago for your previous book called The Corporation. And welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Hi, Larry. How are you? I remember that conversation very well. So what I'd like to do with every guest that I have, because I think it's edifying for me and hopefully for the listeners and people who read your book, I'll say it again. It's boring, but I want to put it out there for you, too, because I think we'd never address it this way. Two stories. The story between the covers of the book and the story outside the covers of the book. And I have a feeling that you have had a fascinating life. So just share with us for a little bit of time. Where did you grow up? Where did you come from? And your life experience along the way. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, I hope I don't disappoint you there. Um, you know, I was born into a big Irish Catholic family in Tacoma, Washington. That's where I was born and raised. I was, I was number eight of ten kids. So it was a big, rambunctious household. And uh, every school that I went to, grade school, high school, I had a couple brothers or sisters who had been there before me, and I had to answer. I had to answer for them. Um, so I longed to escape, escape the parameters of the of the family, and also to escape little old Tacoma, Washington. And so I always had this dream of getting out from pretty early in life, and. Uh, I seized uh, on the opportunity of journalism as a way to do that. Journalism, I started writing in grade school, really, but I became very involved in uh, the school newspapers in high school and then later in college. And these were sort of apprenticeships for me as a professional journalist. And uh, journalism was a great way to get out of the house. And it was also a great way to interact with the world to enter into realms that I was not born in or didn't know from personal experience. And this became kind of a template for me, not only as a writer, but as a person. So getting out into the world, meeting and getting to know people from different backgrounds, racial backgrounds, economic backgrounds, um, using writing as a way to explore the universe. And this is what I've been doing since I've been writing articles and writing books. You know, it's funny you say that because I didn't know where you grew up. But if I had to make a guess, I would have said you're straight out of Hell's Kitchen because that's that's <laughs> the, that's what you write about. That's your kind of your persona. So not from Hell's Kitchen, but boy, oh, boy, I think you understand the world of Hell's Kitchen and beyond that. So I want to come across. I think you you wrote this. If not, correct me. Dangerous rhythms reveal the deeply slice of American history in all its sordid glory. Can you follow up on that? 
Yeah, I think that was written by the publicity department. I'm not sure I would have called it Sordid Glory, but um, I get what they mean. Um, this uh, writing about the world of jazz, it was writing about music that rose up out of the underworld. Um, this is music, this was not music that was fostered in uh, cultural institutions or universities like European classical music was. This was music that rose up from the plantations and rose up out of the African-American experience. That's where the music came from. What I'm writing about primarily in this book is the business side of the music, how jazz became a business entity. And that's where organized crime comes into the picture because that symbiosis between jazz and its uh, underworld benefactors was there almost right from the beginning. So, yes, I accept that. But also I'm curious about your thoughts about is jazz, was jazz a complete American art form in its roots and derivations? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe the greatest American art form, the most durable American art form. Jazz grew out of, um, and I go into this right in the first, uh, in the introduction to the book, actually, Jazz grew out of a, a long period of um, terror in the United States, known as the period of lynching, a 30-year period that lasted into the 20th century. Jazz comes at the tail end of that. I, I believe, I can't prove it, and, I, and it's not a direct cause and effect, but I believe that jazz in some ways was a response to that long period of terror and violence because jazz was revolutionary in its attempts to reorder the universe, to present an expression of life and joy that was unprecedented at that time. And so the extraordinary nature of the music and the creation of the music had to have come out of something equally as extraordinary. It wasn't just a musical phenomenon, it was a cultural phenomenon. And in a sense, it's very American, both the good and the bad sides of that. So let's talk about the good and the bad. And I also want to talk about the classic, seminal song by Billy Holiday, sung by Billy Holiday, Strange Fruit. I think of the jazz musician getting out there and doing a public performance for an audience. I juxtapose that with another audience being entertained by lynchings, different branches on the same tree. Would, would you agree or disagree with that? Oh, I think there's some truth to that, yeah. So why why do these things kind of come together? I want to just take a step back. The song sung by Billie Holiday, why was it considered the seminal song of the jazz age, if it was? Well, it's an earth-shattering song, and the first thing anyone should do who's listening to this conversation when we finish here should google that song and bring it up on their computer and play it and listen to it that is if you don't own it on uh, vinyl or cd or or something to that effect it's an earth-shattering song it's a it's a ballad that was written in an elliptical manner about the phenomenon of lynching and it was unprecedented in a sense jazz in the previous few decades. That song came out in the late 30s. Jazz came into being really in the first decade of the 20th century. And Jack, jazz in its earliest forms, you know, it was 
Louis Armstrong. It was effervescent. It was joyful. It was a lot of fun. And listen to Louis Armstrong with a smile on your face most of the time. Same with Jelly Roll Morton or Fats Wall or a lot of these early stars of jazz. And then in the long, uh, in the late '30s, along comes a song like "Strange Fruit," and it's haunting. It's terrifying. It changed the direction of art in the United States. Certainly changed the direction of jazz. It didn't become the standard for all jazz. It didn't change jazz in the sense that all songs after that or all jazz music after that aspired to be like "Strange Fruit." But it added a little a level of depth and insight and pain and soulfulness to change the shape of the music. You break your book up into two parts, part one and part two. I believe the first part is um, major chord. Second part is called flatted fifth. The narrative thread goes from Louis Armstrong to Bing Crosby to Frank Sinatra. That is a big, big connection for most people. Louis Armstrong, all the way to Frank Sinatra. Can you expound on that? Yeah. Oh, well, um, I was determined in this book to tell the full narrative scope of this relationship because I think that's what was missing. Um, th some things were known about this relationship. Certainly a lot of these great musicians like Armstrong and Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway and Count Basie, who wrote who wrote memoirs or autobiographies late in their life, touched on this subject matter of the mob's influence and control of the clubs and the music business. Um, they didn't talk about it at the time it was happening, because that was almost forbidden. But after the mobsters were all dead and gone, they could come forward about it, and anyone who read those books as I did, uh, even before I was researching uh, the idea of doing my own book on this subject, you get a taste of it. But what was missing is the full narrative. So following it from its early beginnings, and Louis Armstrong is really where this relationship begins, following it all the way through to Sinatra, and, and, and this was the challenge. And this to me was the essential context in telling this story. Number one, because it explains where um, Armstrong was coming from in his thinking, and it explains what Frank Sinatra inherited and where he was coming from in his thinking. Uh, both of those men had something in common, aside from the fact that they were phenomenally blessed and talented as musicians and artists. They had a sense of the business as something that, was controlled by the underworld from the day they started in the business. Um, this is just the way of the world. And we can go into why that was, but the mob controlled the clubs and later they got involved in the recording industry and, and jukeboxes, which, which was uh, geared towards the promotion of, of certain musicians that the mob was favorable to. The mob had their hooks into the business. And Louis Armstrong from the beginning uh, it decided that if this is the way it was, if this was the way of the world, then he was going to get himself the biggest, most powerful mobster of all to front for him. And he did so through his choice of a manager, a gentleman by the name of Joe Glazer, who started out as an associate of Al Capone's 
And Frank did it, of course, to his connections to the underworld, to the mafia, starting from early in his career in New Jersey, was born in Hoboken, all the way through his career. I think he came to regret it somewhat at the end of his career because he became so deeply entangled that um, he could hardly sort it out in the end. Uh, but this was the reality that these men faced, and they 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 not only accepted it, they embraced it. And so their attitudes towards it seemed essential to me to getting at the full narrative sweep of this story. So the man who creates the magic when we go into post-production is with me, sitting next to me right now, who's an expert on Bing Crosby. So he wanted to know what connections did the underworld, the mob, have to Bing Crosby if they did? Well, if he's a Bing Crosby expert, I first have to say, and you mentioned it, that I was born and raised in Tacoma, Washington. So was Bing Crosby, maybe the most famous person to ever come out of Tacoma, Washington. Um, Bing's, Bing's association with the underworld was brief and transitory. It happened in the early 30s when he was first emerging, not only as a recording star, which he had been for a number of years, but a movie star. And uh, uh, ultimately the biggest star in the American entertainment business. In the early 1930s, he was performing at a theater in Chicago, the Chicago Theater, uh, which is still there, by the way, on Wabash. I believe it's on Wabash Avenue, beautiful old theater. Uh, he was filling the place every night. And he encountered a phenomenon that was not uncommon during this era. A couple hoodlums showed up at his dressing room after the show and said, look, you know, this is a tough town. Chicago is a tough town, and you may get extorted or harassed. And so we're here to make sure that doesn't happen to you. What that means is you got to pay us to make sure you don't get extorted. So it was a, using extortion as an excuse to extort him. This was a common thing that was happening to nightclub performers in the 20s and 30s. And um, um, Crosby became concerned about it. He turned to his manager, a guy named Jules Stein at MCA. MCA was a, 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 um, a management company in the entertainment business that itself had roots in the underworld in Chicago. And the reason he turned to Jules Stein at MCA is because he knew Stein knew the underworld quite well, figures in the underworld quite well. And sure enough, MCA reached out to Machine Gun Jack McGurn, who was an underling of Al Capone's, who was one of the most notorious gangsters in Chicago. And they said, can you take care of this problem for us? Jack McGurn came over to see Bing Crosby and said, what can I do for you? And Crosby explained the situation. And McGurn said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to hide out in your dressing room after the show in the closet. And when these goons come by to harass you, I'm going to come out of the closet and give them a piece of my mind. And so that's what he exactly what he did. One night, the guys came by to try to extort Crosby again. Gurn pops out of the closet and pistol whips the shit out of these guys and takes care of the problem that way. And Crosby is fascinated with Machine Gun Jack McGurn. Machine Gun Jack McGurn is a very dapper fellow. I have a photo of him in the book. He, wear one of those, he wore one of those voter hats from the 1930s. He dressed in a cream-colored suit. He really embraced the idea of the dapper gangster. And um, Crosby was 
enamored with machine gun Jack McGurn. And he said to McGurn, well, how can I pay you back? You did me a big favor. How can I pay you back? McGurn said, well, I, I, I understand you like to play golf. Play around the golf with me. And so these guys became golf partners. And, not, and more than once, it extended beyond that one time until um, Crosby's people came to him and said, Bing, you know, this guy's one of the most notorious gangsters in Chicago. The, uh, the law enforcement believes that he was the brains behind the St. Valentine's Day massacre. You really shouldn't be seen with this guy. So Bing cut off his relationship with McGurn, and a good thing he did because a couple months after that, Machine Gun Jack McGurn was murdered in Chicago. So let's reset. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. My guest is T.J. English. The book is called Dangerous Rhythms, Jazz, and the Underworld. I'm going to mention a name that crops up again and again and again. Years ago, I sat down with Rich Cohen, who wrote the book called Tough Jews. More yes. recently, Michael Benson wrote the book called Gangsters versus Nazis. And he shows up, his character shows up in a fictional way in The Godfather, and that's Meyer Lansky. Meyer Lansky seems to have his fingers in the thread of history for a long, long period of time. And in my mind, he is the man. There's a lot of gangsters in this book, but there's something about Meyer Lansky, who is the ultimate fixer, a small man, but nobody would mess with him. Yeah, well, I share your feelings about that. In fact, just last week I was in Las Vegas at the Mob Museum doing a presentation there, and I met Meyer Lansky's grandson, Meyer Lansky's grandson, who, by the way, was born and raised in Tacoma, Washington. There you go. Uh, we seem to be on that track with this. Um, yeah, I met Meyer Lansky's grandson, and we had a wonderful conversation. He thanked me for writing respectfully about Meyer Lansky over the years. I wrote about Lansky a lot in the book Havana Nocturne, which was about the years of the mob in Havana, Cuba in the 1950s. I touch on that subject again here in this book, and that's where Lansky comes up again, because Havana in the 1950s was, uh, uh, among other things, one of, one of the great jazz eras in this saga. And uh, here's Lansky at the middle of it all. The interesting thing about Lansky is he was not a party guy. He was not a guy who hung out in the clubs and partied in the clubs. He didn't chase women. He was not a big heavy drinker, unlike some of his friends and associates, like uh, Charles Luciano, for instance, who was notorious for chasing after women and loved the nightlife. Luciano was a sensualist. Um, Lansky was a businessman. He was very serious about all of this, but he really had his finger on the pulse. He had his finger on the pulse, and what he understood was it enhanced organized crime's stature to be seen as the deliverer of good times to the people. This was something that uh, really rose into being in the years of Prohibition in the 1920s, what we refer to as the Jazz Age, really, really the era in which this relationship reached its highest pinnacle. Lansky understood that in the public relations war, how the underworld would be perceived by the people, that it was essential that organized crime be seen as the deliverer of good times, be it booze, be it uh, music. Later, of course, this became complicated because it involved narcotics also, which in, in many ways 
was and has been the downfall of traditional organized crime. Um, I don't think Lansky saw that coming, but he certainly saw the benefits of the underworld being associated with the people's music, with jazz. And so he provided all sorts of forums and opportunities for the music to flourish. So your book is essentially about mob business, and I'm going to mention some record companies. Uh, Sun Records, Chess Records out of Chicago, I believe, Roulette Records, and Sinatra had reprise records. I think you raise the issue in a global sense that the jazz musicians were really involved in what you call, no matter how well they were paid, the plantation mentality in terms of being controlled by organized crime. Is that accurate? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that comes from er- very early in the development of jazz. It's a, it's a really strange phenomenon, but in the 1920s, um, you know, when, when jazz reaches its pinnacle, you, you can go into a speakeasy, a small speakeasy, and there would be a quintet or a trio or, or a quartet. But if you went into the big clubs, Cotton Club, Connie's Inn in New York, Plantation Club, you'd see the big orchestras. In fact, you'd see the Duke Ellington Orchestra and the Cab Calloway Orchestra. You'd see orchestras with 30 or 40 members. Um, only the underworld could, could have financed that. Only the illegal proceeds that were being genera- generated from the uh, illegal alcohol business made it possible to have those kind of large configurations that um, took the music to new heights. But in those clubs, the, the biggest and most popular and most lavish of all of them, Cotton Club being number one, but others, many others, there was the aesthetic and the decor of the antebellum South, right. the Cotton Club, the plantation. Uh, there, was the, um, there was a presentation of servitude. Very strange. Here we are in Chicago and in New York and these great metropolitan cities of the North, and the preeminent jazz clubs are decorated to look like their plantations from late in the 19th century. It's a curious phenomenon that I guess uh, comes from the fact that jazz came from New Orleans and rose up out of the South to the Northern cities. And so in many ways, this was a recognition, I guess, of the music's Southern roots. But looking back on it now, it's very, it's very disturbing. It's kind of ugly. Um, eventually, jazz did outgrow it in terms of the aesthetics of the clubs. But that mentality, the, the plantation mentality, as you call it, um, was dominant in the music business, uh, from the clubs to the record labels, every aspect of the business, really up until the 1950s and 60s when the civil rights movement begins to change the United States. T.J., in an older episode, a previous episode, I did a whole thing on a woman, Josephine Baker. It was, the book was called Josephine Baker's Cinematic Prism. Really famous expat. She left the South to get out of the, this country, to go over there to become Josephine Baker. How many of the jazz artists left America and went essentially going over, I believe, to Paris, but certainly in that area and, and, and in other parts of Europe, the expats? I think that's a part of the story that's relatively untold. Yes, and it's an important part because, and there are many jazz greats that I could name, um, Bud Powell, 
Lester Young. Um, Louis Armstrong left the United States for a couple of years because he got into a, a management war between two factions of the underworld in New York and in Chicago. The problem was is there was nowhere for jazz musicians to turn in the United States. In some ways, what when we say the plantation system, what we're talking about here is the underbelly of capitalism, American capitalism. This is how things were structured, and it had a racial dynamic to it. White, fo- white folks owned everything, and, and the musicians were the, were the laborers in this sense. And the mob, add the mob to that equation, the mob um, not, in, not only controlled the clubs and the labels, it in many instances controlled the musicians' unions. It instituted in New York and other cities a thing called the cabaret card system, right. where musicians became dependent on the authorization of the system for them to work. And, and the mob had their fingers in this. The mob controlled everything, everywhere you turned. Um, this was incredibly frustrating for the musicians. Ultimately, some of the greatest ones of them all became so frustrated with this that they felt they had no choice but to leave the United States. Dexter Gordon wrote about it in his memoir quite movingly about how difficult it was to make the choice of going into exile. This was not a choice that anyone, even uh, African-American citizens who lived under the thumb of racism, it was not easy to leave your home and leave your families and move to another country. This was not something most of them did by choice. It was something they did out of necessity. As I said before, I think this is one of your best books. It, it, you, you did an amazing job. I don't have time to read the whole thing, but please get the book. Go to the back of the book and look what Richard Price wrote about this book. Um, it is I'm lost for words what he said, but it I was so impressed with what he wrote in the back of the book, and I think it's true and it's heartfelt. TJ, we end every episode with something I call what did I miss, what did I get wrong? So the floor is yours, run with it. Well, I I think that what people need to recognize and what I'm attempting to lay out in this book, because it's really a a story of the pursuit of the American dream which is kind of what all my books are about in a sense. And this is that, and it, it takes uh, the relationship between the, the economic relationship between the underworld and artists in the uh, United States and, and presents it in a way as a metaphor for the development of the country. I think ultimately it's a triumphant story because in a sense, over the course of this 80-year history or so, um, eventually jazz does emerge out from under uh, the control of the mob. The mob is taken down. The relationship between the mob and the music business is uh, that that uh, relationship is separated. That intent, those entanglements are separated, and jazz emerges not as the popular phenomenon it was <clears throat> in its glory years. I mean, there was a time when jazz was 80% of the music uh, market in the United States. Right. It, was, it was far and away the most popular music in the United States for nearly all of the 20th century until rock and roll came along starting in the 1950s. Jazz is nowhere near that level in terms of commercial popularity, but I think most people would acknowledge, certainly those of us who love the music, 
would acknowledge is that the music is thriving. Musically, it is thriving. There are so many great musicians in the city where we live in New York. There are so many great jazz musicians. And so jazz has come out from under this cloud. And it's come to represent, I think, quite triumphantly what it was always meant to represent, which is freedom, concept of freedom. TJ, thank you so much. The book is called Dangerous Rhythms, Jazz and the Underworld. My guest has been TJ English. In the first segment, we had Peter Spiegelman talking about his book, A Secret About a Secret. After the break, some final thoughts on Larry Davidson. Be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Hi, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Some final thoughts. Satchel Page, the African-American baseball player, once said, if you don't know your age, how old would you really be? For the young people out there, for the old people out there, just do what you do and continue on. I'm Larry Davidson. Till next time. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at LarryDavidson'sProductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tie you to her